Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to the New Books in History podcast, part of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Christoph Odinitz, and today I'm speaking with Professor David Tavares, historian and linguistic anthropologist. He is professor of anthropology at Vassar College and former Guggenheim Fellow. He's a specialist in Nahuatl and Zapotec texts, the study of Mesoamerican religions and rituals, Catholic campaigns against idolatry, indigenous intellectuals, and native Christianities. He's the author or co-author of several books and dozens of articles and chapters. This is Dr. Tavares' third time on the New Books Network and speaking with me about his important work. We spoke twice in 2020, once about his 2011 book, The Invisible War, Indigenous Devotions, Discipline, and Descent in Colonial Mexico from Stanford, and his 2017 edited volume, Words and Worlds Turned Around from the University Press of Colorado. His new book, published last year, 2022, the University of Texas Press, is Rethinking Zapotec Time. It builds on his earlier work and is a magisterial and profound discussion of Zapotec ideas of cosmology and time and how indigenous communities maintained and integrated their pre-Columbian beliefs, the Kela Li, or true custom, into the colonial Spanish world and the Catholic Christian faith. This book has already won a number of prizes, including the 2023 Best Subsequent Book Prize from the Native American and Indigenous Studies Association, and the 2023 Social Sciences Book Prize, honorable mention, from the Mexico section of the Latin American Studies Association, and the 2022 Best Book Prize from the New England Council of Latin American Studies. So welcome, David. Uh, thank you, Christopher, for having me here. It's a pleasure to be here for the third time, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, I really appreciate uh, uh, your questions. And uh, let's let's get started. Let's get going. So the book mm-hmm. is a very impressive monograph, in my judgment. It's physically beautiful. It has colorful plates. It has lots of images. It's about two hundred seventy pages, and then it's accompanied by a one hundred and ten page appendix, which is your interlinear translation of um, Manual One Hundred from the Mexican Archivo General the Indias, number 882, which is the foundational document, I think, of, of much of your inquiry. Uh, and it's it's remarkable that, that this rich double cosmology lived on in the hearts and minds and traditions of Zapotec communities for generations upon generations across the centuries after the conquest of Mexico. It's perhaps even more remarkable that it was recorded and that you were able to find it. Tell us about the events 300 years ago, at the beginning of the 18th century that brought this world into light? And then how did you find this amazing document and take your discovery from there? Well, thank you. Uh, thanks for uh, what you said about my book. Uh, is definitely, uh, I'm really happy to have worked with the University of Texas because uh, they understood that the project was a little different, that I had to have um, all this uh, um this large section at the end that uh, comprises uh, some book 100 and 101, uh, and also lots of illustrations because uh, the other part of the corpus is uh, about 102 different uh, manuals 
uh, that are booklet size. They're small, but they contain everything that we know about zapotexmology uh, in the uh, uh, 17th century, uh, along with ritual protocols, along with information about deities, uh, uh, practical information uh, as well. Uh, and uh, so all of that, uh, I guess I'll start with the second part of the question. Um, mm -hmm. a, I, uh, this was a documentation that had been uh, sent out to the Council of the Indies, and it stayed there uh, for several hundred years until the 1960s, when an art historian uh, contacted a uh, Spanish anthropologist, Jose Alcina Frank, who worked in Mesoamerica, uh, and uh, he and uh, his student, Christina Zilberman, started working on this corpus uh, in the early 60s. And they made some publications, went to the uh, Americanistas Conference, uh, presented papers, uh, and eventually, uh, Alcina Frank, uh, but it took him about uh, uh, three decades to do this, uh, came out with a book in the early 90s that was about uh, the corpus and about a study of uh, what could be said about these practices from the Spanish perspective, right? Because we have uh, a very detailed uh, series of uh, uh, sources about uh, ritual practices, right? Uh, they're all in Spanish. Uh, he didn't read Zapotec nor anybody who worked with him, including Zilberman. Uh, so there was the Zapotec part. And uh, one major contribution he made was to alert the world about the uh, um, a, uh, existence of this uh, uh, set of sources. And then the other part was that... Uh, um, a, uh, it includes information about the calendar, the 260-day calendar, which is called in Zapotec Bille, as a word that I'm going to be using a lot, which means time count. And uh, he related it to other Mesoamerican systems. Um, so when I read that, uh, uh, I was actually starting graduate school in Chicago, uh, and that prompted me to work uh, with Zapotec, right, uh, to start learning um a uh, colonial Zapotec through grammars and dictionaries to start working with Zapotec texts. Uh, uh, and by this, I mean, uh, this is, of course, by no means uh, the only thing that is written in, in colonial Zapotec. There's hundreds of uh, mostly wills, uh, also letters, petitions, or documentation that is uh, located uh, in an archive uh, that uh, was collected from uh, a northern Oaxaca, particularly province of Villalta, uh, and that it comprises documents between the late 16th century and the early 19th century. And that was also like a, a great resource. So uh, I started working on this uh, uh, as part of my dissertation. I wrote Invisible Wars, which is really um, uh, a combination of uh, different studies about everything that happened in terms of uh, um, different responses to what Spanish call idolatry uh, in uh, colonial Mexico between the 16th and the 18th centuries, mostly in central Mexico and focusing on now with the Zapotec communities. So once I got done with that, I mean, I knew that uh, the corpus uh, that I'm talking about, that is that the Ark of the is incredibly rich, right? So now I can go back in time to about, uh, you know, uh, more than 300 years ago to tell you what we know about how this corpus came about. So, um, in the late 17th century, have been a lot of confrontations between Dominicans uh, and uh, some communities in Oaxaca, um, and uh, starting with a, a rebellion that took place in the Alcaldías Mayores of Nejapa and Tehuantepec uh, around 1660. This was political, but there was also a lot of tension in terms of uh, how um, a uh, 
certain communities were continuing to conduct uh, a public rituals that uh, address uh, pre-conquest uh, uh, entities, both ancestors and deities, uh, and they were not really stepping down from that, but they continued to do so. So this all comes to um, a major confrontation in uh, September of 1700, when you have uh, a uh, two Zapotec uh, uh, people, one of which had been uh, a member of the uh, a uh, uh, the city council. He was a uh, uh, or uh, rather uh, he had a position in a church. He was a fiscal in a church. The other one did not have that position. Uh, and they uh, tell uh, some uh, Dominicans who are residents in the town of San Francisco Cajonos. They had a, a house and convent there um, that they should go and uh, see what is going on in the house of Pedro Flores, right? And then they go in, they jump in, and then they find this scene that uh, kind of confirms their worst fears about idolatry. There's a deer that is laid out. Uh, uh, there's some balls that, uh, you know, blood is uh, actually being taken out from the deer. Uh, there's images of saints that are being placed, uh, you know, kind of uh, with the fronts, uh, a... Uh, uh, on the table, so turned facing around. away. The images are turned turn around. around. Yes. Images turn around. And then uh, lots of other things that are happening. So as a result of what happens there, um, a, uh, the Dominicans uh, seize uh, some of the evidence, but then uh, a group of people uh, from the community uh, lay siege to this uh, convent and demand that the informants be turned to them. They eventually lynch them, uh, they execute them, uh, and then come back to, to ask for pardon, right? Um, a, uh, as a result of this, the Alcalde Mayor, the civil authority in Villalta, decides to lead uh, a, uh, um, a very severe um, repression against them, uh, which ends up with uh, 15 of the leaders of this rebellion being uh, executed and with a death sentence that is later revoked, uh, handed out, uh, out to other people who are involved in the rebellion. So... Uh, this happens between 1700 and 1702. By 1702, when a new bishop called Fray Angel Maldonado uh, comes in, he decides to try something completely different, which is uh, that he actually sends one of the people who had been sentenced to death with his own uh, pectoral, um, a, uh, uh, that uh, uh, can show anybody who sees him that he's coming on behalf of the Bishop of Oaxaca to ask for Every single community, more than 100 communities are there in Villalta, people who speak different varieties of Zapotec, but also Chinantec and also uh, the Mije language. Uh, they are summoned to the seat of the Alcaldía Mayor to present their confessions. Each town has to present a confession and then present any kind of ritual implements, including texts, uh, and talk about the ritual specialists and what they do. So uh, in 1702 and 1703, uh, basically every single community in this area um, makes a collective confession that is recorded. Uh, we don't have any written confessions except the one that comes from a town called Yalalag that is actually written in Zapotec, uh, which I'm going to talk about uh, later. And this means that uh, finally uh, the Bishop of Oaxaca and his agents uh, can actually confiscate manuals that have been turned in, written in Zapotec. Uh, as I said before, about 102 manuals from different communities that speak uh, uh, different vari variants of Zapotec that come from the three different regions. Uh, their ethno-linguistic regions, uh, the Cajonas region, the Neshitsa region, and the Bishanos region. Uh, and they come in and then they give uh, all this text 
right? It's absolutely unprecedented. And the reason they do it is that they are offered a blanket uh, a offer of uh, immunity from prosecution for idolatry. So whatever is uh, confessed to, they're not going to have uh, a uh, any kind of punishment. Right. And you have to remember that uh, at this point uh, and uh, uh, since the uh, uh, 1680s, there's a prison that is devoted for idolaters in the city of Oaxaca, where people are uh, secluded there. They go there uh, for basically uh, uh, periods of time that could uh, extend uh, their entire lifetimes. Right. So people are very afraid of that. People are afraid of uh, what happened to the 15 uh, a uh, leaders of the railing cajonos that got uh, uh, were executed. Uh, they're very afraid, so they decide to take this amnesty offer. And as a result, we have this uh, incredible um, set of uh, really a, a kind of a library, right? Uh, that is compiled by the bishop that lived in uh, a uh, about thirty six different communities, uh, all Zapotec speaking. That is for the first time uh, surrendered to uh, agents of uh, Christianity. And this is the massive documentation along with uh, four different collections of ritual songs that is compiled by Maldonado and is sent to the Council of the Indies to prove that Dominicans are not doing their job, that they're really bad evangelization. So in in uh, return, Maldonado asks for um, a uh, control of different parishes that Dominican used to have. Uh, he is, uh, you know, of course, the Bishop of Oaxaca. This is Episcopal Jews, uh, Episcopal control rather than control of the Dominicans. Uh, the Dominicans had been very powerful in Oaxaca. There were a lot of uh, contentions between Dominicans and the Bishop of Oaxaca starting the 16th series. And this is where it begins to crumble a little bit more for the Dominicans, um, a, uh, particularly in northern Oaxaca. So this is why we have uh, all this uh, incredibly rich uh, trove of information, because all of this was sent out uh, to uh, a uh, Spain uh, after, you know, 1703, 1704. And again, it, it stays there uh, and nobody really looks at it until the early 1960s. So this is where everything begins. <laughs> That's amazing. Me. The Inquisition records are very rich for historians all over the place, but this is, this feels mm -hmm. to me like an exceptional uh, mm -hmm. find. And then when you begin your, your story here, it's a generation later when it turns out that all this did not go away as the Catholic authorities had hoped. Um, there is a woman that you begin with named Mariana Martin. Would you tell mm -hmm. us a bit about her situation, her life, and why would she turn uh, this secret world uh, out to the authorities? Why would she be a collaborator or collaboratrix, a snitch, right? Mm -hmm. To this day, the name Malinche can be a curse in Mexico for similar reasons. What's, what is, what's, what's her deal? And I just wanted to add that you referred to this as a proctological history, quoting Bernard Cohen, which I'd not heard before. It's a very funny term. But of course, history from the bottom up reveals things that authorities could never dream about. And here you found it. So tell us, tell us the story. Absolutely. I guess I'll start with uh, the proctological history quote. I love it. This is something that anthropologist Bernard Cohn referred to in a classic uh, article called an anthropologist among the historians. And I mean, my sense of it is that, uh, you know, people talk about Eric Wolf, the people with that history, subaltern studies. Uh, and uh, for me, I mean, the, the, the notion of proctological history is resonant in two ways. One, because it's really um, positioning uh, the, the 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 historian as coming from the bottom up. You know, however you define that, uh, right? Uh, and it resonates with uh, Michel de Certeau's uh, idea that uh, in order to study a work, you have to define your relationship to um, a uh, 
where your position uh, as a historian and the kind of uh, a uh, inner workings of society that are never going to be this directly accessible to you, but you know are there because uh, you are looking at sources, right? So. Uh, if you think about proctological history as, think, uh, as something related to how early modern societies, uh, late medieval societies, uh, uh, thought about uh, um, the state, you know, we're thinking about uh, uh, Ernst Kantorovich's classical work, The King's Two Bodies, where, you know, obviously there's uh, uh, the king is the head of the state, right? The state is a body. Uh, there is a body of the monarchy. And this is kind of the, 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 the uh, claim that the Spanish were trying to impose on uh uh, indigenous communities uh, everywhere in the Americas, that they were part of this uh, uh, multifarious uh, um, uh, body, right? Yeah. Uh, uh, that was the state, that was the Spanish monarchy. There was a place for them, right, in some sort of symbolic way. And uh, Zapotecs and others are aware that the head of the monarchy is the king of Spain, rather than they should, rather than local authorities. And sometimes they actually go directly to the king, right? Mm -hmm. uh, um, so, uh, that's uh, the, the 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 part about history from below. The other part about uh, Mariana Martin is that uh, this opens the door to thinking about uh, well, who exactly was uh, a, um, facing the bishop, facing Dominicans, trying to preserve uh, these ancestral practices. And what it seems to be is that there is a, a certainly highly patriarchal uh, elite, right? Uh, um, town officers. Uh, uh, local uh, elites that knew that they were descended from lineages that had founded different communities in Northern Oaxaca, or at least had the claim to have done so. Um, and also, uh, not everyone in the community was happy about uh, how they were um, a, uh, orchestrating these collective rituals, which were still clandestine. They still have to hide from the eyes of other um, you know, people who didn't belong to the community, and especially from Spaniards and Dominicans, uh, priests, etc. Um, so uh, Mariana Martin is somebody who actually doesn't go with the directives that the elites are trying to uh, uh, a, uh, hand down to other people in the community. This is a community of La Chita, which is very close to Betasa. Pidesco in Zapotec, which is one of the communities that we know a lot about because one of the songs uh, actually was written by a ritual specialist uh, from Betas and then given to a, another neighboring community called La Chirioc. So you'll be hearing these names, La Chirioc and Betasa, and then La Chita, which is close to Betasa. And uh, Mariana Martin actually does not want to pay uh, what is called in Spanish terms a derrama, a contribution, you know, each um, household has to contribute a particular amount of money to buy uh, turkeys, to buy maize, to prepare offerings, to buy cacao beans, to buy uh, alcohol and other things needed for a collective feast. So uh, each uh, household in this, in this particular case in September 1718 um, is asked to contribute three reales, right? Uh, how, much is is actually... that? how much is that for a, for a family? Well, I mean, it, it's something like uh, a... Um, if you think about the usual compensation for unskilled labor, uh -huh. uh, it's one to two reales per day. 
So okay. we're talking about two to three days of uh, a salary for somebody yeah. who actually goes and hires themselves. Most of these people are independent in the sense that they have their own parcels of land. They're not necessarily completely integrated into the uh, money economy, right? So this is a, um, kind of a moderate ask. It's not a huge, huge ask, but it's something yeah. that she doesn't want to do. So she uh, tells her husband she's going to do it. Her husband beats her up. Uh, a Somebody else says, well, you know, we better kill her because she's going to. Uh, and remember, this is 1718. This is a good, um, you know, 14 years about the uh, after the events we talked about. So she goes uh, to the jail in uh, Villalta, a uh, 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 seat of governance, and Ildefonso, and tells uh, uh, her son-in-law that what is going on. The son-in-law uh, talks to the authorities, uh, and he's in prison, so obviously he's not completely neutral on, on these uh, matters. Uh, and then somebody, uh, you know, the alcalde mayor decides to send somebody to figure out what's going on. Uh, people know that Mariana Martin has talks so this point everyone from La Chita basically lives the community and the only person that lived there is a widow uh, and the widow uh, a uh, uh, is guarding uh, a number of different uh, ritual implements like uh, eight vas of tepache a tuton drum that is known as nikachi in zapotec and teponastli in nahuatl turkey and deer bones that would be used as a drumstick uh, and, and other implements so they're organizing a feast that it would have been uh, taking place on September 17 of 1718 which is the date 11 night, Lala in Zapotec, day 63 in the 260 day count. Uh, it is also uh, the 11th day of the 11th uh, period in the year count, uh, which in Zapotec is called Ga, which means fruit, which is actually uh, a structurally and at least conceptually it seems similar to the Feast of Shokotwetsi, which is fruit falls in the Nawa, um, a, a, a feast calendar of, uh, you know, you have 18. Feast of 20 Days, which is quite similar to what the Zapotecs have. Uh, and this is all happening also on a date that, uh, according to other records, we know that the good words go. That yeah. is a propitious date for uh, making um, an ask of uh, ancestors or deities. So we know the cosmological significance of the date. We know what they were going to do. And we also know about kind of the dynamics of uh, a uh, confrontation within the community. You know, there's elites and there's uh, people who don't like uh, the business of, uh, you know, giving out their hard-earned money uh, or other goods for the people who are in charge of the community La Chita to uh, organize these collective feasts, you know, is onerous on them. And they're probably also afraid that the community will be punished by the Spanish. So all of this comes uh, together uh, in that uh, 1718 denunciation. You know, there's no follow-up, right? Uh, uh, the the authorities eventually retreat and they just put this denunciation and they're, you know, obviously putting the people of La Chita on notice that if this happens again, uh, they will be dealt with very harshly, but they're really not able to fully punish uh, everyone that might have been uh, a uh, involved in these uh, activities. But this is the start of the book because it gives us, uh, in a very rich way, everything that we're talking about, you know, the uh, uh, actual organization of these practices, the cosmological significance, the uh, politics uh, within this uh, a communities, right? And mm -hmm. a glimpse of what I call a, a republic of letters, which is yes. basically thinking about Zapotec uh, literary specialists conforming a uh, 
a group of people that are exchanging information, right? Uh, uh, in written form and in oral form that is preserved for most of the 17th century until um, the repression that uh, Maldonado leads, uh, leads uh, them to go underground and leads for a large part of the commentation to be um, committed to uh, archival uh, a uh, storage in, in Spain. So yeah. it, it, that's 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 why I started the book there because it gives us a lot of a lot to think about. Absolutely, and I think it's very striking and effective to to bring your thesis into focus through a person's lived experience and daily life. Uh, it makes it relevant, and it's not just an abstraction, but it is something that a real woman had to deal with three hundred and five years ago at this point. Um, and what it brings into uh, our minds is that there's a whole invisible cosmology that you explain um, through the central portion of this book, which traces Zapotec feasts across cycles of time, uh, the work of the daykeepers, and also cosmological space with words like, here's the mat, or here's the field, or here's the entrance to the houses. Can you um, try, it's, it's an enormous world that you have uh, explained, but can you try to uh, summarize it for us uh, so that the listeners today can understand a bit how it worked with the houses, the rising, the the descending, the the Quincunks, which was a new word to me that that uh, you showed uh, in in image and all the levels and cycles and and what how do the feasts work across time and space and and daily practice that people like Mariana Martin and her husband were were preparing for? Yeah, well, uh, yeah, no, as you put it, it's a really complex world. Uh, it took me a long time to understand the annotations and to put everything together. And I think what, uh, you know, just methodologically, this is obviously uh, addressed to Mesoamericans and people who get really excited about codices. It's not, it's not everyone who's <laughs> listening to the podcast necessarily, but I'll try to my best in terms of explaining it. Because what I've done is uh, I work with, uh, you know, uh, as I say, colonial texts with uh, contemporary specialists, with uh, somebody called Ricardo Ambrosio in Lechiriag, who's a Zapotec intellectual who's helped me a lot in terms of understanding the language. Uh, all of this information, of course, is very different to what people do today. There's a very vibrant Zapotec cosmology in Zapotec and different communities. Hmm. It from my perspective, it looks, I mean, there's some similarities, but it looks different, right? Uh, uh, and the, uh, there's still people who um, use uh, the uh, different versions of the BA or the 260-day system, particularly in the Sierra Sur uh, of uh, Oaxaca and in some communities in, uh, uh, in the valleys of Oaxaca. It looks different structurally. So what I'm going to describe is what I, I have been able to tease out uh, and understand, uh, you know, along with uh, other Zapotec specialists and intellectuals of this uh, work. But basically, you have to imagine two different cycles. One is uh, 260 days. It's a basically endless cycle. It goes always from day one to 260, and then again to day one. Uh, this is the spinal cord of the divin uh, divinatory system in Mesoamerica and also for the Zapotec system. There's also a 365-day, uh, and that 260-day uh, uh, system is usually called BIE, which just means time count or time period in Zapotec. Um, a, uh, uh, etymologically, it might actually be uh, something that uh, conjoins the word for symbol, which is ye, uh, to a prefix that is usually associated with something animate, which is be. So it could be thought about etymologically as the, the living image or the living symbol. Right. Uh, regardless of the etymology, is the most important part of the divinatory system, and it's also linked to the 365 uh, vague solar year. And we call it vague solar year because, of course, uh, uh, a uh, the actual length 
of the solar year is close to 365 days and a quarter, mm -hmm. right? So this is why we have uh, a, uh, a uh, we have a, a day uh, every four years in both the Julian and the Gregorian system. Um, uh, and, uh, but it's, 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 it's different, right? So we have this 260 system and we have uh, also, uh, this is time. And then we have cosmological spaces. We have three different houses. The house of Earth, which is where we live. The house of sky above, eight levels above ours. And then the house of underworld, eight levels below the house of Earth. Uh, each of the different houses is uh, composed by uh, four different directions and then a center, which, uh, you know, this is where Mesoamericanists uh, uh, use that word quincunx that you refer to. It's just basically five different things together, right? Four directions and a center. And if we put together... This uh, uh, basically uh, three house system along with eight levels that mediate uh, between sky and earth and earth and underworld, uh, you end up with a place on which each of the days can actually move. And we have in the majority of the of, of the uh, manuals directions in terms of uh, you know the day one comes out of the center of the house of earth then it goes around the four directions and it goes up eight directions that takes us to the first uh, 13 day period which is called trecena in Spanish it's a term that Mesoamericans use to talk about 13 day periods uh, if you have 260 days then we're going to have 20 trecenas 20 periods of 13 days each and then the way it works is that each 13 day period unfolds uh, in time and also in space. So we go from Earth right to the edge of sky. That's one 13-day period. Then sky, again, down to Earth. That's a second 13-day period. Then uh, from Earth to the bottom or the edge, rather, of underworld, that's another 13-day period. And then going up again from underworld up. So it goes up and down uh, uh, eternally. And this is the time-space continuum. Uh, that's one part, right? And we know, of course, that uh, ancestors are located at particular places. If we think, for, for instance, about the day seven year, which takes us basically to the second level above Earth, that's where um, a, something very important uh, uh, takes place in a song that talks about uh, a dobiga, uh, 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 which are... Uh, necklaces made of beads that are handed out by a particular ancestor along with uh, a uh, broad-leafed uh, plant, yaza. And that happens on the second level on the day 70, right? So this system also pinpoints where we are in time and space all the time. And only ritual specialists know how to all the ins and outs of the system, right? But then above uh, sky, there's four different fields uh, which uh, I call cosmological fields because uh, a uh, they seem to be related. And now I'm going to talk about the codices. I'm going to talk about the Codex Borgia, uh, which uh, uh, it's quite important because it has been uh, interpreted as a record of the the birth of uh, uh, different things like the tips and other things in this kind of cosmogonic uh, um, a. Uh, set of events, uh, and I'm talking primarily about Elizabeth Boone's uh, understanding of it, but uh, other people like Victoria Bricker and others actually look at it uh, more in terms of uh, how certain parts of the Codex Borgia are ways for understanding where you are in the cycle of Venus, which is an earlier uh, attempt to understand, again, some page of the Borgia that Edward Seller, uh, uh, an early Mesoamericanist, uh, um, devised for understanding the Borgia. So the Borgia is a very complex uh, um, set of uh, a knowledge about how different uh, um, 
important uh, uh, components of the cosmology, of Mesoamerican cosmology came about. And I uh, see a close correlation between four different fields that are above sky. The field of the burial, which looks like Borgia 29, which is usually associated with night and wind. The field of blood, which looks to me very similar to Borgia 30, uh, where divine serpents give birth to other sacred beings, and they're located in a red pool, which I interpret as a pool of blood, then hence the uh, a relationship with the field of blood. Then it's also the field of sucklings, you know, little entities that are being suckled, that are being uh, given milk, uh, which looks a lot uh, like um, a... Uh, a, uh, a different way of thinking about Borgia 31, where you also have a different sense of birth giving and uh, different entities, cosmological, uh, well, uh, 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 a uh, divine entities that are actually being, um, you know, given milk uh, uh, that are, uh, you know, being suckled by uh, a uh, other uh, maternal entities, right? And then there's feel of sharpness which to me correlates with Borgia 32. You know, the sharpness corresponds to actually uh, an anthropomorphic flint uh, that is at the center of this uh, patient, the Borgia, uh, and is surrounded by different enclosures that are made of flint. So the whole page is uh, about uh, a uh, sharpness in terms of the, the actual flints uh, that are part of, of this page, right? Uh, so there's lots of different uh, ways of thinking about uh, uh, the structuring of um, a events that take part uh, that, that take place. I'm sorry, at the beginning, even before time is created, according to the Borgia, and also uh, a way of understanding those events uh, in the Zapotec cosmology in terms of these four fields, right? And there's uh, other parallels with the Borgia that I'll just mention briefly. Mm -hmm. uh, one is uh, the fact that uh, day 257, uh, which is 10 movement, uh, gets an entire patient Borgia 25. It's very important. And uh, in the uh, calendrical text, I also find an emphasis on rituals or uh, offerings and deities that preside uh, over the days that stretch between day 257 and the first day of the next count, this is a day where, you know, the end of the count is coming. So uh, uh, according to some annotations, the count is kind of losing force, right? And a new count is beginning. And this is why that uh, day 257, right before uh, the end, day 260 and day one, uh, uh, you know, one count ends, another new one begins. That's why it's important. Uh, so we see another uh, parallel between the Zapotec text and uh, and the Borgia. Uh, another uh, parallel that's important is a protocol of offerings that uh, are spaced out in the years. Uh, there's a cycle of 52 years of 365 days each that is, uh, you know, known in Mesoamerican cosmology, but in the Zapotec texts uh, and uh, the Borgia texts, there's a particular pattern of thinking about 13-day periods. It's basically Trecena 12, 17, 2, and 7 that are a, uh, a, uh, a present as a particular uh, cycle in Borgia 31 and 39. And they're exactly the same cycle that we have in terms of when certain offerings uh, are going to be given uh, across the 52 years divided into groups of four. So all these different uh, uh, parallels are quite strong, 
right? Uh, it seems to me that with the Zapata cosmological text, we have a different view on a cosmology that is quite similar to what was preserved in the Borgia. So uh, in an interesting way, of course, we have a way of uh, um, having a different understanding, a different perspective on the Borgia text, which are uh, uh, created by people who probably live in the Puebla Mixteca region, right? Uh, they might have spoken uh, a, a Mesoamerican language uh, like Nahuatl, like Mystic, or another language. We are not sure about that, but we know that Zapotecs, of course, speak Zapotec and have a, a similar perspective on very important events that have to do with the creation of the world that are told in their own cosmology and within their own understanding of time and space. Uh, so we have uh, different cosmological theories, different cosmological understandings, uh, kind of broad agreements in terms of what is important, both in the Borgia uh, uh, Codex and in the Zapotec text. And this is really exciting, I guess, if you're uh, uh, interested, Codex is interested in uh, Mesoamerican cosmology, because it gives us a different perspective on uh, both what the Borgia Codex might actually uh, preserve, and also how a different version of these traditions were preserved until the early 18th century by Zapotec speakers in northern Oaxaca. Yeah, well, it's for me, it, as somebody who's not a specialist in this field, it's just dazzling how big the world is and how much of it you've discovered. Some of this is intuitive, and I think all peoples do it. You know, every every Christian knows that uh, when Lent goes to Holy Week, goes to Easter, we move from fasting to mourning and sacrifice to the great celebration, and likewise Jews with Passover and so on. Some of this, to me, feels very common across Mesoamerica, as you have as you have as you have made com uh, comparative observations, and especially where you talk about uh, the obsidian um, and and the flaying the the flaying deity and things like that. It reminds me of the corn traditions of, of the Nahuatl people and the Popol Vuh that I remember reading as a student where you peel away your sacrificial victim and there, there's a transformation that happens. So maybe tell us about what kind of actual practices the Zapotec people who are doing this either before the conquest or clandestinely ever since or um, were, were, were observing we know there's feasting, there's singing, there's also sacrifice. And at one time, you, you, you show us that there's child sacrifice and cannibalism, which comes in the, uh, at the end of your book on page 260 and 261, which in an astonishing um, confession. What, what kind of things do you think uh, happened 300 years ago? What kind of things do you imagine? I mean, not do you imagine, have you learned about that continue to this very day? Okay. All right, so I guess I'll start with uh, the first part of the question, which is, uh, you know, what Zapata people did back then and uh, do still, and then talk about uh, this uh, particular notion of, of, of human sacrifice that uh, also um, a uh, comes uh, it's, it's expressed in this uh, in these confessions. So. Uh, for the first part, I would say that there's one constant in terms of offerings, uh, you know, turkey, cacao beans, alcohol, uh, sometimes grains of maize uh, uh, are offered, right? This was uh, true in the 17th and 18th, uh, early 18th centuries, and this is still true today. Uh, the protocols that structure this uh this is where it has changed, of course, because uh, according to the ritual songs, we have uh, different uh protocols that uh, re re revolve again against uh, around uh, a uh, slaughtering turkeys 
cutting their necks and, you know, have reference to that as we go in the songs. But then all these different things are happening in terms of uh, talking about particular deities, right? Uh, how they're uh, related to each other and how they come about in the world. And this is something that is talked about in the songs. This is not something that uh, we know from contemporary rituals. That rituals tend to talk about uh, a... Uh, uh, the owners of the hills, the uh, or the uh, rather uh, the, the 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 sacred beings who live in the hills, who live in the rivers. Uh, you get the names of Christian entities, but what is described is very different to to what was happening in colonial times. And so, what it, what they do is that uh, something specific. I think is uh, I've called it, and you know, this goes back to I guess the work of Emil Durkheim uh, in early anthropology. This proposition that uh, you know, do des, I give so you may give. You uh, build a relationship with. Um, um, deities based on an exchange, right? Uh, there's different dynamics with this exchange, but something that is emphasized uh, in Zapotec is this notion of an equal exchange, which in Zapotec is called Keya, right? Uh, so you're setting up some sort of a uh, um, uh, large exchange uh, that involves uh, animal sacrifice, cacao beans, uh, <coughs> other offerings, burnt things too, Um uh, and they're giving to these deities uh, because you're following what is called Kelali, the straight custom, custom, and you're using Kesali, the straight flame, right, to, mm. to cut through this uh, um, a sacrificial offerings. And I mentioned this because, of course, this gives us a vocabulary for thinking about um, how Zapotecs themselves designed, uh, designated, I'm sorry, uh, this uh uh, forms of sacrifice. Uh, I will also say in passing that the Dominicans appropriated terms like quesali, the straight flint, to talk about faith, <laughs> because mm. uh, you know there, there's uh, different ways of, of 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 talking about faith, right? Uh, in Nahuatl, you have the uh, a uh, uh, the straight following of a deity uh, as a way to talk about faith. It's a neology that is probably attributed to the Franciscans. The Dominicans use quesali, which just means straight flint, and which refers uh, uh, inherently to sacrifice, to talk about faith, right? And then they put different ways of uh, uh, qualifying that so we know that they're talking about the Christian faith and not actually a Zapotec uh, act of sacrifice. But this is part of how um, uh, we think about these uh, practices. Um, but in terms of, uh, you know, I've, I've been talking about uh, cosmology in ways that seem abstract. Uh, something that is very specific is that uh, uh, we see it in the 17th century and we see it uh, today. Uh, we have very special, uh, very specific sites, right? Uh, like the top of Yaguiz, uh, which is a sacred uh, hill uh, in La Chiria. Um Joazin, which is a small pond that is behind the center of the Green Cross in the community of Ya, San Andres Ya today. There's another site in Betasa that has its own name that is dedicated to what they call the true Lord of the world. Um, so in order to uh, a um, give, to participate in this exchange with the uh, sacred entities, you need to know what to do. You need to know what to offer. Uh, you need to know how to offer it. Uh, you, you need to know what words to water. This has uh, have changed, obviously, between the 17th century and today. But you also to, need to be present at the particular spot that is still a sacred site where these entities still dwell, right? Uh, so there are strong parallels for <laughs> some communities. Lachiriog is one of them. San Andres Ya is another one. 
uh, where you have exactly the same sacred sites that are being used, uh, probably in different ways between the 17th century and today. So that gives us uh, a way to think about continuity in ways that uh, resonate with place, right? They no longer resonate with time uh, and the time-space continuum because we don't have quite the same reckoning of time. Contemporary specialists use a different book. Uh, they use El Manual del Más Antiguo Galván, which is actually uh, an almanac, a farmer's almanac that dates back to um, uh, in popularity to the early 19th century, right? <laughs> they, they don't use uh, uh, the uh, the same kind of uh, cosmological man as the recent 7th century. But there's continuity in terms of thinking about what you're going to sacrifice, how you're going to offer it, and where you're going to offer it. Everything else, might there might be difference says in terms of uh, understandings and uh, uh, the notion of uh, what entities are involved, but there's continuity. Uh, in some ways as well. There's no human sacrifice. Or All right. We not know? So, yeah, let me talk about that for, for a second. Uh, not that we know of. And uh, what I should say about uh, child sacrifice is that, uh, I mean, we have testimonies, right? Uh, I think it's hard to get to the actual claim because of the fact that Christian authorities have always associated human sacrifice, whether it actually happened or not, with these practices, right? Um, there are some glimmers at uh, what might have happened. Uh, for instance, during the confession, uh, somebody from the town of Tiltepec comes forward and says, well, in 1698, we uh, a, uh, extracted the heart of a unbaptized newborn because there was a smallpox epidemic. Uh, and there was a, uh, an epidemic of something probably quite like smallpox, but because mm. we know it from other sources, right? Um, and they confessed to it. <clears throat> so we have at least a report of uh, a, something that happened uh, very infrequently, but it could have happened. But at the same time, we have other stories, like uh, there's another uh, specialist from Tano Shosa that claims to be <laughs> a shapeshifter and claims to have gone into a house through a ventilation hole uh, and uh, taken out a child. That is much harder to assess, of course, as a claim. And uh, there's also uh, a confession that is written in 1704 by the town council of the town of Yalala. And this is really interesting because they actually say things like, uh, we take children to make a reverence before the deities of stone. Something fetid is made. We were sickened. Right. This yeah. is what it said in Zapotec. Yes. Um, <clears throat> the translator actually just cuts through that Gordian knot, uh, yeah. cuts through what they're saying and says that the town had been, quote, sacrificing young children, unquote. Right. Uh, but they do own up to something that sounds like uh, child sacrifice, because in that co uh, same confession, uh, uh, they state, we confess before you our sin. We indeed at the necks of children all of them, the sons of daughters of the Alcalde Mayor, right? Um, so we have at least a couple of avowals where we are told that uh, a small child, or maybe more than one small child, was um, a sacrifice, right, by the community. Uh, from the Tiltepec example, we know that uh, this would have happened when uh, uh, at a very extreme um, because of extreme circumstances, 
perhaps because um, the community was facing an epidemic, was facing a threat to survival that was so um, enormous that they decided to resort to child sacrifice, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so this is, you know, what, and then again, uh, in 1735, the entire town council of this community that I mentioned before, Yalala, is again accused of child sacrifice. They lose their uh, a, uh, offices. They actually appeal to the viceroy uh, of Mexico, uh, which is also the Archbishop of Mexico at this time. Uh, the viceroy actually decides to give them back their offices, but then he learns why they have been taken away, right? And then he resents that decision. So we know that this um, accusation comes up. Uh, it does come up infrequently. It seems to refer to uh, e- sacrificial events that were probably uh, done uh, very sparingly and only again uh, because uh, the community felt that this was what it was needed for survival. Uh, and I, I guess, you know, beyond that, it's hard to say uh, more about child sacrifice because it's kind of a part of this, you know, nebulous set of practices that are always going to, um, I think we're always going to get uh, um, a uh, a bias view mm-hmm. from most sources, right? Yes. And I, I, what I've tried to do is try to tease out what can be said about what Zapotecs themselves said about child sacrifice to make sure that uh, we are countering in some ways uh, the bias that uh, is usually found about uh, human sacrifice sources uh, in Mesoamerica. Yeah. And then the fact that this tradition has survived all these centuries, this, despite uh, the pressure of the authorities, shows that even though, uh, you know, D- Dominican evangelists might come in and, and take certain turns of phrase like Kezali and reappropriate it into something more more Christian, I, I speculate from reading that, that the, and I would love to hear if I'm right or what you think, um, is that the Zapotec re- uh, relationship to the deities is is significantly different than the Christian relationship to deities. Otherwise, I, I I would imagine that one would get sort of supplanted or eclipsed by by the other. And uh, the transactional sacrificial model, the do ut des, that you referred to from Durkheim, um, we also see that in in the West. And uh, in your introduction, you said this is an astonishingly rich religious tradition, as may be seen as equivalent of Mediterranean antiquity. Uh, obviously there's child sacrifice in the ancient Mediterranean. Certainly we know about Abraham and Isaac uh, and um, the things that people hope to get from their gods today, you know, gifts of jewels or uh, blessing a marriage or a chicken coop or all the small daily things that we need from the deities. If we're living, you know, if we're just living our lives, Um, how do you understand both in the past and in the present, the relationships that Zapotec day keepers and people who follow this this uh, this true way that the Kelali have have in their relationship for for their, their deities. By by contrast, I'm sure all our listeners know that Christians have, or at least are supposed to have, an attitude of love for God and for their fellows, a hopeful expectation of resurrection in the friendship of that God who so loved His people that He chose to redeem them, adopt them, and accompany them. This, 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 what kind of God or gods do we have in the Zapotec tradition? And 
how is it that both traditions coexist in the practices of people living in Oaxaca and, and those in Baya? Yeah, no, that's a great set of questions, right? Uh, yeah. um, I, I think we can start about uh, contrast with Christianity, and then we can talk about the second part of the question in terms of uh, uh, how they are both maintained at the same time, right? Uh so for the first part, I mean, I guess an important question for Spaniards was, why do you do all these things, all these offerings for these deities that we claim are false, right? Uh, and um, when the Franciscans came to uh, central Mexico, there is actually a document that was uh, a, uh, a edited by Sagun and his informants, uh, where we have a, a version of the uh, dialogue between the 12 Franciscans who come to Mexico in 1524 and the priests, the Mexica priests and other Nahua priests. Uh, and this is actually modeled, uh, you know, there's a kind of an early model, uh, modern way of thinking about this, about the uh, disputatio, right? Like back and forth between two arguments that has its roots in, you know, what uh, uh, Ramon Yuge, uh, uh, a uh, well-known theologian, uh in uh, early modern Spain, device in terms of confrontations between Christians and Muslims, right? It has to be a conversation, it has to be a dialogue, right? Um, so uh, one of the uh, ways in which uh, the Mexica uh, are said to have responded to uh, these 12 Franciscans. And of course, we're getting this through many filters. They, we don't know if they say that uh, or they say in so many words, uh, but uh, what the response seems to be is that there's something that is um, a rooted in tradition. They've always done it uh, since you know for for a very long time, and they they owe uh, those sacrifices to to these deities. Uh, from the Zapotec side of things, I think we have a similar but different argument that is rooted in ancestral knowledge. In a lot of these uh, calendrical manuals, the first line reads literally: "This is the time counts of uh, our fathers." And grandfathers, Shosi uh, Shotao, right? Uh, in Zapotec. Uh, they come to us from our grandfathers. They come from the ancestors. Um, and uh, they relate to the concepts that we were talking about earlier before this notion of equal exchange, Keya, and this notion of Kela, uh, Li, uh, the true custom. Um, it uh, is important to also think about how. Uh, in Nahuatl uh, and in other languages too, in Mesoamerica, people talk about that traditional religion. Uh, in Nahuatl, they call it el costumbre, right? Mm -hmm. uh, which is uh, uh, Spanish borrowing. It differs in, in gender. We usually talk about custom in Spanish as la costumbre, ah. but in the Sierra, uh, uh, actually in the Huasteca region, uh, Nahuatl speakers talk about it as el costumbre, right? And there's this notion of costumbre as as, as being talked about as this uh, set of uh, um, obligations uh, and exchanges with uh, um, a uh, uh, the 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 ritual and religious practices uh, uh, of ancestors, right? Uh, in Zapotec, we have the word uh, itself, kela, which means something like way, custom, uh, manner, right? And it is actually talked about many, many times. So we know that by that time in colonial times, the Zapotecs and others have coalesced on this particular notion of, uh, you know, custom uh, to talk about these practices. But then there's also 
you know, uh, different ways of thinking about uh, how you're going to defend that, right? Which is actually talked about in the ritual songs. For instance, there's a song that says, never burn the decrees, the mats, meaning the uh, different days in Kam, which each of which are talked about as mats, M-A-T, right? Uh, uh, of your father, uh Never lose the writings of the custom, the writings of the gifts, the writings for requesting. Never. So there is an injunction from this ritual specialist that these writings, and they're talked about as writings. They go back again to pictographic writing, to codices that actually are related to the sky and that descend from the sky, according to other sections of these uh, songs. And they have to have to be preserved by ritual specialists and by the community, right? Uh, so that's the part where, you know, we're talking about ancestral wisdom and it has to be, uh, it, it, it has to be continuously enacted by community members. And this is the part where we have, you know, people like Mariana Martin who say, well, maybe I, I don't think so. I don't want to do that. Right. And they kind of, uh, act, you know, against it. And so we have, uh, a different side of our understanding how, uh, others in the community think about that claim you know, about ancestral knowledge and such wisdom. But then the other part, and this is something, you know, that uh, uh, Javier Ruiz is an uh, archaeologist who uh, has done a lot of work on trying to understand ancient Zapotec writing and ancient Zapotec uh, religious practices. Uh, and uh, uh, he reminds us that there is this continuum in terms of different entities, right? Uh, uh, some of them are clearly deities, right? Like uh, Kobechi, we have a, a name for somebody who, uh, whose name really uh, means something like a maker, right? Which, again, resonates. You were talking about the Popol Vuh. Uh, this resonates with Tzakol uh, Pitol, which is uh, maker and modeler, uh, according to Dennis Tedlock's uh, translation of these words uh, in the Popol Vuh, which is a central creator deity. So we have a deity that's a creator deity that uh, I guess at least some resonates with what somebody else in Mesoamerica is talking about in terms of titles for creator deities. This deity is the, the, the father of uh, Koshana, which is one who gives birth, literally in Zapotec, which is known also to be a creator deity. And there's also another deity that is also important, Wichana, which is a female deity of uh, rivers, of fish, of uh, fertility. Um, so we have at, at one tier, I guess, Deities that are clearly Zapotec, like Kobeshi, Koshana, and Wichana, a triad of very important deities. But then other deities that are like Central Mexican deities. You mentioned a, 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 a deity that was flayed, which is clearly a parallel to our Lord the Flayed One, Shipetotec in Nahuatl, uh, that is encountered in this Zapotec cosmology. We have uh, a Zapotec equivalent to Quetzalcoatl, uh, this deity that comes from Central Mexico. We have other parallels, right? But then Beyond those deities, uh, we have uh, also ancestors that have very particular names and that are associated with particular communities like La Chiriog, La Betasa, which have to also be given um, a uh, something to eat. And I guess one extreme of this uh, is to actually think about uh, a particular uh, leader in La Chiriog who actually leads the worship of his own great-grandfather, right? Uh, his great-grandfather is somebody whose name 
Yaklava, which means one rabbit in the 260-day system. And there's a mention to one rabbit among different ancestors that are being given gifts, that are being propitiated in a song that comes from that community. So it is very plausible to think that this person was actually leading uh, everyone in the community in the worship of somebody who actually brought a sacred bundle which is also part of uh, the protocols. And this is something that is actually unveiled uh, uh, from a particular uh, cave that is located in this uh, um, sacred mountain that I've talked about in La Chiria, Yawiz, right? Uh, so he and other members of the community are directed to take the sacred bundle and un unfurl it, uh, reveal it uh, in front of the, uh, uh, the person who's uh, a, uh, supervising this confession uh, in that community. Uh, and so we have the sacred bundle. We know that one rabbit was the one who brought uh, about 100 years earlier the sacred bundle to La Chiriog. And then we have the song where that particular person is also propitiated as an ancestor. So, yeah. you know, uh, we have lots of obligations. Some of them are to ancestors. Some of them are to deities that are um, clearly Zapotec deities. Uh, only Zapotecs worship them. Some of them are for entities that come from elsewhere in the Mesoamerican world, have parallels in the Zapotec uh, cosmology. Uh, so we have lots of components to this very rich cosmology, different levels, and it is only the ritual specialists yeah. and the elites who understand it. And of course, uh, for commoners, you know, it's up to them whether they're going to continue following the Kezali, uh, you know, the true flint, or whether they're going to actually say, well, we don't want to contribute to that. Yeah. We're Christians, uh, you know, we rebel against that, and that, that leads to, you know, political uh dissent within those communities yeah and so we live in a time where if i don't want to be a christian i could convert to islam or i could become a buddhist or i could just skip mm -hmm. be an atheist and nobody will give me any trouble but here this admonition that you quoted never give up the ways of your ancestors your fathers your forefathers it seems to me uh that there in these collective rituals there's forms of resistance as well that if they take this away from you you cease being the thing you are you are now just something you're no longer yourself do you see these collective rituals as a, as a form of resistance against the colonial system that came from abroad? Yeah. I mean, one way to think about it is that, of course, uh, a lot of Zapotec communities in northern Oaxaca decide to have a, you know, uh, two different ways of uh, addressing the sacred, right? One is the Christian way. You collect money, you know, for when Dominicans come in. And we have to remember that uh, a lot of these communities are visited sporadically by a priest, by a Dominican. We have uh, Dominicans who are in San Francisco Cajonos. We are in other different places, right? They don't visit these communities every day. So for uh, beyond the major Christian uh, celebrations, which are usually... Uh, feature the 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 uh, presence of uh, priests, uh, the presence of somebody who actually says mass. Uh, we have lots of time in the year, uh, which communities can actually you know decide uh, you know what to do in terms of practices, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so we have information about, uh, and I've written about this extensively. There's uh, the community in Betasa, which has a budget for uh, everything that is going to happen in terms of ancestral. Uh, practices. Uh, we have people actually training others in terms of how to uh, perform music, how to sing for the ancestors, and they have their own budget. And that comes out of whatever is um, a leftover from the uh, 
collections of the ramas that have been made to satisfy Christianity, right? So it works in this kind of uh, precise, uh, a bicameral way in some ways yeah. uh, for this community. Other communities may have had uh, similar arrangements, but we have this uh, this indication, right? Uh, yeah. In terms of the practices, in terms of the confessions that uh, Mm, uh, ritual specialists continue to inform what happens within the uh, uh, a sphere that is really a clandestine sphere of ceremonial practices uh, that takes place alongside Christianity, right? Um, so one way to react to that is to defend that uh, uh, local space. And you defend it uh, by making deals with the alcalde mayor sometimes, but sometimes the alcalde mayor, and this happens uh, sporadically, this happens particularly in 1704, decides, of course, uh, well, I'm, I'm going to actually confiscate uh, the money that you are reserving for those idolatrous practices. Uh, I'm not going to uh, help you anymore. I'm, I'm, I'm going to actually uh, 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 send you to the prison of idolaters that has been set up by the Bishop of Oaxaca in Oaxaca City, right? Um, so th there are times at which this arrangement fails, right? And uh, what we have uh, in terms of uh, following this through time is that we have episodic events where um, events that are uh, regarded as idolaters by uh, Christian authorities are suppressed, uh, for uh, uh, forgiveness is asked for by the community, and then the Dominicans uh, uh, come in and uh, uh, they pretend that it's not going to happen again, but it seems to be happening again. And the seventeen eighteen case that begins uh, a uh, the book is a clear uh, a uh, signal that what was happening in seventeen o four was continuing. Uh, even though we have less and less documentation throughout the 18th century about what's happening, right? We know a lot more about what happened in the 17th century through these cases that we know about in the 18th century. But there's uh, other confrontations, including confrontations that are juridical in nature. Uh, there's a case from the Chinatec region where you have uh, the civil authorities, we have the priest, and we have the local uh, authorities, and they have different stakes in the game. Uh, and this also relates to whether uh, we believe that uh, uh, a, uh, the ecclesiastical authorities have uh, a, uh, you know, jurisdiction over accusations of sorcery or whether ecclesiastical authorities do, right? Mm -hmm. And eventually uh, the uh, uh, Audiencia of Mexico has to intervene and say, well, this is actually uh, mixed jurisdiction, right? So there are certain cases that, uh, uh, you know, call for ecclesiastical intervention, certain, certain cases that call for civil uh, uh, a, uh, intervention, and that's a way of solving an issue. But uh, uh, what we know, uh, of course, is that there's constant uh, um, ways of challenging the status quo, Right, uh, particularly in the 17th century, and then this uh, uh, forms of resistance uh, mutate and become more diffuse, become uh, harder to look at and to read through, uh, and disappear eventually from uh, 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 trial records for Oaxaca after, let's say, 1735. So something's happening. We can talk a lot less about what ha that, that happened after 1735 we, because we have less direct information, right? Um, uh, the other thing that I should mention is that uh, the practices also talk about doing 
the 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 uh, some books uh, talk about this uh, the practices that are made for ancestors as being Gaia Lacho, being done in mm -hmm. a mixed way. This is a metaphor uh, that uh, a uh, utilizes the word Lachon, which actually is something like. Uh, uh, is attached to bastard children. Is attached to mestizos. Is attached to uh, a the offspring uh, of uh, a uh, uh, a donkeys and horses, mules. In other words, something that is hybrid or mixed in origin by nature. Mm -hmm. And this is how um, a ritual specialist see the actual practices that, that they're performing. They're performed in this way that is kind of mixed. It's not quite like uh, the ancestors were. Um, Perform, uh, 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 performing these practices. It has to be different by necessity. Uh, and they're aware of that. They're aware that uh, these practices have to be defended. They call for defense of this practice in the songs. They're aware of this kind of mixed status uh, uh, from their perspective, but yet they continue to try to do so. And of course, what happens is that uh, we mm, end up knowing a lot less about this forms of resistance uh you know after the 1730s uh in northern oaxaca but it is likely that they continue to uh to be pursued in in ways that were less visible right uh in words that were less salient uh in public uh, ways but they were there because you know uh today the 21st century we still have uh, again sacred sites we have um a some um system that are comparable but not similar to the Bille mm. in the Valley of Oaxaca, in the Southern Sierra of Oaxaca by Zapotec speakers, uh, not so much in the Northern, uh, in Northern uh, uh, Zapotec communities. Uh, uh, a, but they, they, they continue, they just continue in, uh, in different ways and with obviously different political meanings uh, uh, today. Yes. Well, I feel we could keep going and I promised you would be less than an hour. So I think we uh -huh. should stop, but is there okay. anything that you would like to add um, that we didn't talk about that is important and uh, either about the language or your career or what you're going to do next or well I, I think we covered uh, uh, everything that uh, I tried to talk about in the book thanks to your um, wonderful questions I guess uh, I mean uh, something that, that 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 I would uh, like to add is that uh, um, I mean this is a case study on why it matters to actually do scholarship in indigenous languages, uh, why it pays to uh, pry open in some ways uh, different sources, right? That uh, have uh, information about different domains and uh, from the perspective of indigenous historical actors, right? In their own language. We're very fortunate to have lots of different resources uh, that are very rich in Mesoamerica, uh, there's definitely been uh, more attention to these resources by uh, scholars who work in Mesoamerica. And uh, I guess uh, the challenge is to keep on going, right? Mm -hmm. uh, um, uh, in some ways, I mean, this gets back to what James Locker talked about, uh, different sources, right? Uh, he used to say, well, there's, uh, you know, people who look at work that has been done in sources and they come up with new interpretations and that's important. But then uh, there's uh, a, a way of investing yourself in a primary source. And that takes a lot of time, right? It takes a lot of efforts. It takes uh, years of uh, 
you know, being able to read that particular source, being familiar with the language. And that's the, the, the kind of work that, uh, you know, is done less frequently, but it's, is very important and it is very valuable. Um, I try to work, of course, with indigenous intellectuals as I, as I do this. My next project is actually, uh, I'm looking at, uh, uh, a translation and interpretation of a biblical book, the Prophet of Solomon, that was done oh. in Nahuatl by wow. Franciscans yeah. and uh, indigenous intellectuals together. Um, <clears throat> it is very important because it's really the only example of a scholarly translation and commentary of a biblical text uh, in the uh, colonial Americas. And uh, by, by this, I mean an interpretation, a verse-by-verse -verse interpretation is not uh, necessarily comparable to John Eliot's uh, uh, Massachusetts Bible, which is a mm -hmm. translation of the Bible, but not so much a scholarly commentary of it. Uh, it, it differs to, you know, for instance, what was done in Quiche, Maya, Domingo de Vico's work that uh, we know about from the 1550s, which is uh, basically taking different themes that come from Aquinas's uh, uh, Summa Theologica and trying to render that into um, uh, Quiche Maya. is an actual interpretation of a book in the Bible, verse by verse, right? Uh, which is so different from other resources that is actually confiscated by the early Mexican Inquisition in 1577. Uh, and so this is a, a work that I'm actually doing with a, a contemporary, a, 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 an anthropologist who happens to be also a Nahuatl scholar, intellectual, Abelardo, Abelardo de la Cruz. Um, and so our project is to a, uh, translate and interpret this work. And this is, you know, one of the, many projects that I'm working on, uh, the other one being um, something called the Oxford Handbook of Ritual Language, which is a collection of uh, um, different chapters uh, uh, on ritual practices, ritual language from an anthropological perspective, uh, mostly contemporary throughout the world, not just Mesoamerica. Uh, and I think between that book, uh, uh, the translation and commentary of the Prophets of Solomon and other projects that I have on uh, Nahua humanism, uh, meaning humanistic understanding of texts uh, that are Christian in nature, uh, uh, that were done, uh, that were completed by now intellectuals and Franciscans in the late 16th century, early 17th century. With all these projects, I'm going to be busy for, for a while. And uh, <laughs> I'll be happy to keep on talking about these projects with you and anybody who's interested. Uh, so I, I thank you, uh, Krista, for this wonderful conversation. I think uh, uh, the New, Bo uh, New Books Network for you know giving me the opportunity to talk about my work. And uh, I, I really thank you for this opportunity. And uh, I guess we'll just just keep on going. There's so yeah. much more work that can be done. Uh, and I'm hoping that, uh, you know, others who are listening, other historians, other anthropologists, other uh, uh, linguists uh, will be also, you know, motivated to to keep uh, to be, keep working on, on similar topics. That is such an exciting project. And very much I look forward to talking about it with you when, when you publish that one. This book is called Rethinking Zapotec Time, Cosmology, Ritual, and Resistance in Colonial Mexico. Dr. David Tavares, thank you so much for writing this book. For It's been a joy for me to read it last week. And thank you very much for being part of the New Books in History podcast, part of the New Books Network.